Welcome, everyone, to the Inquisitive Introvert Podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Frank. You are actually the owner and founder of the Frank Institute Health and Wellness in North Carolina. I read about you. I think you're really interesting. And so I guess my first question is, what made you want to become a doctor, a neurosurgeon on top of that? I started out actually wanting to become an orthopedic surgeon. I was uh, I played college and professional basketball and you know thought that that would be a great role into going into like being a team doctor. I decided once I got into medical school that spine surgery was actually more of the way I wanted to go and so I decided on neurosurgery. It was a wonderful specialty. It turned out not to be exactly what I wanted in my medical career, so I've morphed out of it a little bit and I opened the Frank Institute about two and a half years ago. What was it about neurosurgeon that you sort of didn't really like or what kind of turned you off about it? So if neurosurgery, is, it takes a certain type of person. You know, when you're dealing with usually catastrophic issues, which you're seeing a neurosurgeon, it's usually not a good thing. And you have to be able to, for lack of a better word, switch off your emotions and just look at someone, look at the analogy I use when I say why I left is, you know, the 42-year-old woman, the mother of three, the good person and has a very positive life and things are going well for her, comes in for, with two weeks of headaches and you have a massive GBM, a grade four GBM, and you have to tell this person that they have six months to live, or the three-year-old healthy little girl who has been fine and has a seizure, and you do an MRI of her brain, and she has a massive medulloblastoma. Those are the kind of things I just, I'm a very empathetic person, and it was very difficult for me to just separate myself. And so the hours didn't bother me. The surgery, I loved doing surgery. It wasn't the stress or the pressure. It just was, as I say, the constant badness. And there are people that are guys I trained with that were phenomenal neurosurgeons and could do that, where they could kind of modify their emotions, so to speak. But it, that wasn't something I could do really well. So what I decided was to try and find a different field of medicine that was more suited to my personality. What is it that you do at the Frank Institute of Health and Wellness? I know we spoke a little bit about it prior to the interview, but feel free to share. So the Frank Institute for Health and Wellness is kind of a brainchild of the way that I think medicine should be delivered. My theory on medicine, the way I practice medicine, is treating the underlying cause of disease in an almost preventative kind of setting. If you go into a, in a lack of a better way to say it, a standard internal medicine, family medicine doctor, and you say, I have high blood pressure, I have high cholesterol, I have diabetes, you get a medication to treat each one of those individual symptoms. The way I look at it is I say, hey, why are you this way? What imbalance, what issue, what problem is causing you to have these disease processes? And so I basically reverse engineer and come back to the root cause, and that's what I treat. Dr. Frank, one thing I thought was interesting when we spoke before is that you mentioned that you actually had a little bit of back pain and that, you know, was a contributing factor to you sort of doing the Frank Institute, working with anti-aging and rehabilitation. So what, what did back pain sort of teach you about pain, if that makes any sort of sense? It does. What did back pain? I hurt my back <laughs> in the game in college. And what back pain taught me is that it's debilitating in so many different ways. Back pain and pain in general literally can consume you. And if anyone out there listening knows someone in chronic pain, you know, unfortunately, that it dominates their life. It dominates their thoughts. It dominates their inability to act. It, it dominates the fact that they cannot get enjoyment from life. So you can't really have a quality of life if you're in pain. And so as I looked around and say, well, what options are there for back pain and for treatment? So there's injections, there's surgery, spine surgery, which I did many of when I was a neurosurgeon. But I wanted to find a way that treated inflammation. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized and began to learn 
that inflammation is the real root cause of pain. And if you can treat the inflammation, you can treat the pain. And so one of the things I do for every one of my patients, no matter what I see, whether it's for lifestyle modification or weight loss or for preventative medicine or for hormone management, it's all based on what you're doing to reduce the inflammation in your body. And unfortunately, in our modern American diet and lifestyle, it's so pro-inflammatory, it isn't even funny. Everything that we do exacerbates inflammation. The food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink, everything is pro-inflammatory. And so it makes it very difficult to treat things like chronic pain because you're continuously fueling the fire. And it was my goal, personally, to figure out a way that works for me to treat my pain. And what I did is I, I got back in shape. I lost weight. I changed my diet. I have a class four cold laser, which is what I use. And then I found a supplement called P-Cure, and that really kind of took me over the edge. And so these are the things I try to impart to my patients that come in with pain, not only back pain, but any kind of pain. I can literally say, I know how you feel, and this is what works for me, and this is what works, and here is good evidence-based medicine behind what I'm doing. And here are a multitude of options that, while these may not work for you, here's a whole list of other things that we can do to try and help your pain. And Dr. Sike, I'm always curious when I speak with doctors about how they view preventative care in the healthcare landscape now. Do you feel like it's we're actually being more, we're actually practicing preventative care more, that we're talking about it more, or is it just sort of people don't really know how to get started with preventative care? Like providers really don't know what to say to a patient when they come in for their annual checkups to say, hey, okay, you're in good shape, but here are some things that you can do to be in better shape so this won't lead to a disease down the line. Do you feel like that conversation is being had nowadays, or what are your thoughts? I don't think it's being had in the right way. Mm -hmm. I think that there's more awareness for preventative care, and, you know, there are all these edicts coming down from the medical boards and from the medical societies that, hey, you know, this is what you need to do to prevent X, Y, and Z disease. But in the reality of it, there's two issues. One, doctors are so busy that they cannot take the time to explain these modalities. Two, a lot of the patients aren't very receptive. You have to find a way to get your message across in a way that the patient is going to take those changes and implement them in their life. It's very, very difficult to do that in the modern medical system. And so what we've become is we've become very reactionary. And while there is, if you look at medicine 10 years ago and look at medicine now, there's an astronomical change in the attitude of preventative medicine. If you talk to some of the older physicians, preventative medicine isn't really something that they think about. It's treatment of disease, and that is a system that has worked. But I think what people are wanting now, and patients are being more educated and they're coming to their doctor and saying, I don't want to get sick at all. I watch my parents, they take 14 different pills and they go to doctor's visits all the time and their quality of life is in pain. I don't want to get that way. What do I need to do to make sure that I don't? And a lot of doctors are like, oh, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. And those are the doctors that really understand what real preventative medicine is. Doctor, what's your recommendation for people that tend to be too, I don't know, they try to take the health in their own hands. Like, where does that relationship come in? Like, what's a healthy balance, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask, between self-education and actually going to your doctor for, for health? The problem with self-education, this is, a, my cousins are veterinarian, or vets in New Jersey, and some, one of the patients will come in with their dog and say, oh, I read this on the internet, and my cousin will say, oh, you consulted Dr. Google and now you're here for a second opinion. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The problem with the information that's out there is there's a lot of bad information and you're listening to people that have no medical training 
they're telling you how to live your life, and they don't really understand the nuances of how the body works, the physiologic processes. And so you have these people, and you have a lot of celebrities that say, hey, eat this, do this, and they don't really know what they're talking about. And so people tend to gravitate, I hate to say that, but people tend to gravitate to those famous people and say, oh, well, look, that, look what they're doing. They must know what they're talking about, so I'm going to listen to that. And then they, you know, people come into my office because I see a lot of patients that are more interested in, it be, other than you know, being an MD, I still get a lot of patients that come in looking for alternative treatment. And some of the stuff that they tell me, I just look at them and I want to say, where did you get that? Because it's so staggeringly wrong that I almost don't know where to start to address it. It's giving patients appropriate websites or resources to go to that you know that it gives multiple sides to the story, but they're all appropriate sides. And I know that sounds like I shade my patients to resources that will tell the patients what I want them to be told, and that's not the case at all. But I encourage my patients to be educated. Before I start treatments, I always encourage patients to go home and research and to call with questions. My patients email me frequently with questions. They will send me articles. They will send me links to websites. And will say, hey, Dr. Frank, what do you think about this? And I'll tell them, hey, you know what? This is not a bad idea. It's okay if you do this. Or I don't know where this particular person got this information, but it clearly has nothing to do with treating human beings because it's way out in left field. So that it's got to be a team. The days of the old patriarchal doctor where you walk in and you say, here's your script, and you walk out, and that's the end of it. Those days are gone, thank God, because that's not the way to practice. As a patient, not only for my patients, but myself and my family, I want to know and I want to be a part of what's happening to me. So education, communication, these are things that are very, very important as medicine moves into the 21st century. One thing I'm really, really curious to ask you about because you're a surgeon is how do you think technology is influencing how surgeries will be done in the future? I'm just really interested to hear what you think about that. When I was in my neurosurgery training and right as I left, we were just starting to get some of the laser laser tracking systems. We started using some of these systems to make sure the pedicle screws were put in appropriately and using CT-guided surgeries. It's only going to make things better. My issue with technology and medicine is you begin to have two issues. One, you lose the art of the practice of medicine. And there's a feel, there's a touch, there's an understanding that you can't get from a test. That, I'm afraid, is being lost because those skills have to be honed when you don't have anything else to rely on. So you have to really know what you're listening for. You have to take subtle clues. And if you order 15 different tests, you lose that ability to understand those nuances. The other thing is that these tests often find things that aren't really relevant. Like my wife is a radiologist, and they a lot of times will do CT scans and you know, the chest or the abdomen and find little tiny nodules. Okay, well, now what? What do I do with that information? There's a potential downside to all of this technology, but used appropriately, just like, just like anything else in the world, used appropriately and judiciously, technology is going to advance the practice of medicine light years ahead. But what we can't do as physicians is we can't rely only on the technology. And do you think that people are getting healthier or sicker nowadays, Doc? Because every time I turn on the TV, it's like, don't eat this. And I feel like there's a lot of false movement towards cures for very fatal illnesses. But no one, I don't think statistically, like, that we're getting better. So I just kind of want to know your, your overall thoughts. So all the questions you ask me, my answer is yes and no. One of my all-time favorite comedians is Louis Black. And he does a bit where he talks about, he asks the audience, are eggs good or bad? 
And there's no answer because people are like, well, yeah, they're good, but they're bad. The whites are good. The yellows are bad. Well, now the yellows are good. And the problem is, is that there's so much information out there that people get very confused, even when it comes to healthy food. And so you're seeing a divergence in America right now. And I'm going to speak more to my generation. I just turned 40. And so you're seeing a divergence. You're seeing people in my sector go two ways. Either they're very healthy, great, eat the right kind of foods, get the right kind of exercise, et cetera. And then you have another part of the population, which is going even worse, even worse than the previous generation's quote-unquote sick people. You're getting a ton of obesity. You're getting a ton of diabetes, heart disease. These things are happening to people in younger and younger. The kind of middle-of-the-road person, is you don't really see that. It's a very interesting divergence that you're starting to see in the American population. And the sick people are getting sicker, but the healthy people are getting healthier. So it's, you have this split in the road. And to be very honest with you, it's not good because a lot yeah. of people are going down the, the unhealthy road rather than being healthy. And what's the root cause of that, doctor? Is it the way we live? Is it misinformation that we're getting? Or is it just our environment? What's really going on? Yes, it is all of that. It is <laughs> the fact that we are becoming a much less active society. I have three little kids. I have a six-year-old, three-year-old, and one-year-old. Their friends don't go outside. Their friends, even at six, my oldest daughter is six, her friends stay inside and play on their iPad and play video games. My kids, we don't have video games in our house. Her name is Cora. Cora has a little nook that is an old nook that my wife had, but it's limited. And so we go outside and we play and we do activities. You're involved in sports. And so the problem is, is that these kids are becoming very, very sedentary. And that's because everything is being provided for us. I saw something on the news the other day that Amazon is now going to start droning in packages. So you don't even have to go to your, you don't have to walk down the driveway to your <laughs> mailbox anymore. They're going to drone it to your front door. While there's a ton of benefit to that kind of convenience, it really makes you not be motivated to be active. The human body is designed to be active. You have this inactivity. You have horrible food, horrific food, and it's pervasive. I live about two and a half miles from my office in Wilmington. There are seven fast food places between my house and my office. And Wilmington is consistently noted to be a very healthy city. There are seven fast food restaurants. You have to be kidding me. And people <laughs> wonder why there's this massive obesity problem. You go to the park, we take our kids to the park, and you look and there are six-year-olds that are 125 pounds. Wow. And then you look at their parents, and this is not to place blame, but they are unhealthy. And so you get this perpetuation of this unhealthiness within these families. There's so many different factors, and it makes it very, very difficult to address them because it's so multifactorial and so spread out. Dr. Frank, one thing I always like to ask providers is for people that want to get into healthcare, what do they need to be successful? You need to have a love. You need to have a passion. And whatever that passion is, you need to follow it. And whether it's medicine, whether it's healthcare, whether it's whatever, healthcare is a different entity, especially being a doctor because it is a very, very, very difficult road. Anyone who tells you that becoming a doctor is easy has nobody in their family or nobody said they're going to be a doctor. It is extremely difficult. If you don't think about quitting in medical school and residency at least once a week, you're not trying hard enough because it's very stressful. The thing that keeps you going is you have to be passionate. You have to love what you're doing and be willing to sacrifice. In residency, I missed so many things because... I was working. 
I miss birthdays, I miss anniversaries, I miss wonderful events that I would love to be a part of, I missed because I was working. So that's the biggest thing. Yes, being smart obviously helps. Yes, having a great work ethic helps. But if you don't love what you're doing, you might as well do something else because you will get burned out very quickly. One thing, uh, Doctor, that we have in common is a love of sports. And I just kind of yeah. want to talk to you about, I want to ask you an NBA question. We hear okay. a lot of, especially older guys, older commentary, older players talk about how soft the NBA is now. What's your take on the NBA and who's your favorite player? Us both being from Chicago and playing with the Bulls in 2001, I'm, of course, a Jordan, Scottie Pippen fan. I love those guys. I was yeah. lucky enough to play against Kevin Garnett in high school. Wow. Kevin Garnett is my favorite player by far. He plays with such a passion so game. I love KG. There's a guy that gets what you need to do to be successful. He was successful for a very long time. And to emulate someone, you want to emulate KG because he really just had, gave the most of what he had. Is the NBA soft? Eh, that's a loaded question. The NBA is different. People are like, oh, LeBron James wouldn't last five minutes against the bad boys of Detroit. Oh, guess what? Jordan didn't last five minutes the first couple of years. <laughs> they beat him up pretty bad, and that was when I was watching. That was in my teenage years. So it's very different. It's a very different game. Would Steph Curry be Steph Curry if he had to play against the Gloves from Seattle? If he had to play against Gary Payton? Is yeah. he going to score 45? Probably not. Because <laughs> Gary played in a very – there was a very physical game. But the game is different now, and the players are different. So that the fluidity – of the game is so much more emphasized now. And so in order to get that fluidity, you have to tighten the physicality. And what I mean is you have to basically call the game tighter. And what that does is that allows these guys that are these tremendous athletes the ability to really showcase what they can do. In one way saying, yeah, it's soft because there's not the banging that goes on, there's not the physicality, the hand-checking, the forearms, but it's a different game. It's a very fun game to watch. Even at this quote-unquote soft time, Anyone who thinks that basketball is not a contact sport is sorely mistaken. I can tell you I have seven broken ribs and three concussions to prove <laughs> it is a, a contact sport. It's just different. And, Dr. Wood, for the audience that they might not know, you actually played professional basketball for a while. And one of the I things did. I want to ask you is what did basketball teach you about medicine? That they're very different. I left my last season playing professionally. I played for the Oklahoma Storm of the USDL. We won the championship under Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He was my coach. I won the championship, drove from Oklahoma to Chicago, picked up my mom and my stuff, and drove to Philly for med school. And what I found is the things that I had honed over the last two to three years in basketball were not something that I could apply to medicine. The oh, wow. intensity, the almost angry state you have to be in in order to play at that level, those things were giant negatives. For me. But what basketball taught me is how to be pliable, is how to be able to adapt to situations, and how to remain very focused on your goal no matter what your surroundings are. And so while those traits were not beneficial, the strength and the steel that I developed while playing basketball allowed me to make what is a very dichotomous transition from professional sports to medical school. Without playing, I think I would have had a harder time doing that. And, Doctor, I have two final questions for you. I know you're busy. Yeah. What is your favorite book and why? I love to read. I'm an avid reader, so I'm always curious oh, what people are reading. You were, were going to ask me that. I don't know if I can give you a favorite one. I can give you a okay. favorite topic. How about that? I'll give you a favorite topic. Yes, that works. I like to read 
about innovators. I like to read about people who created something from nothing, whether that's people like Steve Jobs, whether that's people like Rockefeller, who was a real bastard, but <laughs> literally completely created an entire field. He created gasoline and oil refinery. If it wasn't, and you look at somebody like Carnegie and how he just created the steel industry. These are, are men and women that are giants that have propelled society forward. And to understand how people like that work and how people like that look at things, I find absolutely fascinating. I'm so busy. I don't really have time to read much, but those are the things I really enjoy reading outside of medical is reading about true innovators. And Nikola Tesla is one of the people that I hold in very high regard because he looked at things very differently. And to be in the field of medicine I am in, I have to look at things very differently. And I have to be, again, be flexible, be pliable, and have to be able to take things from different areas and put them together. And so people that can do that, I think, are absolutely fascinating. So that's the kind of the genre that I like to read. Awesome. This has been great, uh, Dr. Frank. I learned so much about you. I really appreciate your passion and your service. And um, if people want to find out more about the Frank Institute for Health and Wellness, where should they go and how should they contact you? So you can go to our website. It's frankinstitute.com. You can feel free to email me directly if you'd want to. It's drfrank, D-R-F-R-A-N-K, at frankinstitute.com. You're welcome to call our office. Phone number is 910-679-8534. I have a very small practice. I have it that way intentionally so that I can give the kind of attention to my patient that is deserving. And so there are times when I'm available and I, you know, if someone calls and I'm available, I'm happy to talk to them. I've gotten so busy in the last couple months that that's not as frequent a occurrence, but usually email is the best way to get me. Well, thank you so much, Frank. 